Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. One of every five Canadian couples confess that their significant other does not know how much debt they're in, according to a new survey by Manulife. Joining us to talk about this is an investment advisor at First Ontario Credit Union, Carolyn Humby. Carolyn, how are you? I'm very well, thanks for asking, Ted. Now let's uh, talk about this first of all. One in five. Why do I think that number could be higher? Um, I think it's higher than that as well, from my experience with my clients. <laughs> uh, not sure. I guess it depends on who enters into the survey to get those statistics. But when you sit down with clients, um, do you, as as you said, if you think it's higher, do you kind of uh, sit down with them and then one has this kind of a wide open deer in the headlights look like they had no idea things were that bad? Uh, usually it comes up if somebody's looking at doing some kind of refinancing because the credit bureau discloses all. The other thing I notice is a lot of times people will think they're carrying three or $4,000 on a credit card and it's actually five or six. So there's almost, um, they're delusional for themselves as well. And of course, we all know that uh, three to $4,000 is tough enough, but five or 6000 I mean, the, uh, the debt payment alone on that can be quite exorbitant. When you talk to them, um, do, do they have any reasons why they kind of withhold things from the other person? It's usually to avoid confrontation because it's going to be an uncomfortable conversation. How can it not be? Hey, by the way, we owe $10,000 more than you knew. Wow. Um, it, it's, it sneaks up on, on people, I find, because there's a little bit of robbing Peter to pay Paul. Um, you make the credit card payment, and then because you run out of cash, you end up using another credit card, or you move debt from one card to another, and it escalates um, a little bit unaware. It's too easy to get credit now, I think. And is is also part of the problem that, uh, well, I mean, we are not in this situation, but my wife, for example, handles all the banking and does all the online stuff, and that's fine. And I will ask her, we talk about it all the time, what are we doing and what have you. So I'm kind of aware of what's going on. But is one of the uh, people involved in the relationship that handles everything, for example, online and doesn't tell the other person or the other person doesn't want to know, could that be part of the problem? I think there is maybe a little bit of an ostrich thing. I don't really want to know, so I don't ask. Um, The reality is, because people have independent incomes, they tend to think that that keeping their finances separate means there's no disclosure. I disagree with that, because if if, if it's a partnership, clearly, you know, if I'm planning a trip, I need to know if the other person can afford to go, Um, that kind of thing. Um, I know I have known several people who, because of the fear of confrontation in saying, hey, I bought something new, um, they'll buy clothing, shoes, bags, whatever. It tends to be the woman that does this more than the man, Mm -hmm. but sticks it at the back of the closet, brings it out three or six months later, and he says, is that new? And she says, of course, no, I've had it for months. She's never worn it yet, but there is that deceitfulness. And the scary thing, as far as the relationship is concerned, is if there's that little kind of smudging and white lie and and non-disclosure, if you like, what does that say about the rest of your relationship? It's kind of like cheating. It's interesting because um, they're obviously saying uh, that some couples talk about money, but half admitted that that leads to stress. And this survey from Manulife said the younger the couple, the more the stress. 43% of those 35 and under said money was a source of stress. It's tough enough to make ends meet for a lot of people. I get it. And when you have this type of not open relationship, 
Is it any wonder that couples go through a lot of stress when they talk about finances? It's probably less stressful to just get it out on the table and work with someone to find a solution than it is to harbor, you'd be waking up at night with anxiety, wondering when the other shoe will fall, because it always will come out at some point in time. Uh, So when a couple comes to you, uh, you're an investment advisor at Mm -hmm. First Ontario Credit Union, and you sit down, kind of tell us what you would do as far as finances with a couple. Do you sit down and basically go through, not necessarily line by line, everything that uh, they're involved with, but obviously doing a relatively deep dive into their finances is something you would do, correct? Well, cash flow is, is key because you can't have savings if you don't have cash flow to meet your daily needs. So a lot of, a lot of financial preparedness for you know, whether you're looking forward to future purchases or whether you're looking to retirement, you need to have a hard look at how you actually do spend your money. I find when you do a budget on paper, it always works out. And in reality, it never works out. So a better way to go at that would to be actually paying attention to how you're spending your money on a daily basis, recording it, and, and you know, have a look at a month or three months to see how you're spending. And in that, if you have a credit card payment of $250, which is just covering interest and it never goes away, while your credit is good, would be a good time to speak to someone about consolidation, about restructuring, because if you don't have enough to get through to the end of the week or the month or whatever it is, you're just digging a deeper pit. You cannot, like, everybody gets their credit card statement. It says, if you make the minimum payment, you'll pay this off in 31 years. Right. And it's like, it means never. So credit card debt should be avoided at all costs. If your credit is good, if there are larger purchases that you can't manage in one month, then a line of credit with a lower rate of interest would be useful. But if you're not good with revolving credit, I think you need to look in the mirror and tell yourself you're not good with revolving credit. And you should have a credit card with a $1,000 limit for the convenience of booking a hotel room or renting a car, but you should not use credit. Uh, the B word, bankruptcy, I'm sure uh, uh, at some point somebody has to have a conversation with, with uh, couples involved in this and say, look, you know, maybe because of the situation you're in, you kind of have to uh, rejig everything. Um, people are scared of that war, but it doesn't have to be scary, does it? Well, there's a step before that where you can actually go and work with a financial counselor that can negotiate with your, like it's a, a plan of arrangement, basically, where they'll consolidate all of your debt, which might stop the interest cost. If you default on that, then all of the interest comes piling back in. But it is something a step before bankruptcy. It does affect your credit rating. Um, A lot of people are very, very proud of their credit rating being so high. And really, it's not a compliment. It means you're overusing your credit. Uh, A lot of times people will come and they barely qualify because they don't use credit at all. So, you know, um, Equifax or TransCan... TransUnion, they aren't even aware that you exist on a credit basis. So having little or no use of credit can get in your way if you're trying to buy a house. But a a good use of a young person starting with a credit card is get the credit card, get your cell phone billed to that, and put the credit card in the drawer. You're paying your cell phone bill every month anyways, and it does establish a good credit rating. Then when you need it, it is uh, available to you. But when you max out, there's something called capacity as well. So if you have like several credit cards that have $5,000 limit, I remember back, um, I shouldn't even tell you how old I am, but <laughs> 40 years ago, 35 years ago, we had, you know, there was Eaton's and Sears right. and on and on and on. Robinson's, we, yep. 
Yes, we could have bought a house with the amount of credit that was available to us, and that was a frightening thing. Fortunately, it wasn't out of control, but what if we had? What if we had you know, tapped into all of those? We would have had to be bankrupt. There, there was no other option. This uh, survey also said uh, apparently uh, one of the problems that couples make is when they're trying to divide expenses equitably, uh, they make the mistake of letting one partner handle the fixed exp- expenses like a mortgage or rent or what have you, and the mm-hmm. other one uh, handle fluctuating bills like groceries. Why is that kind of uh, the start of going down a slippery slope? Well, if yours is always the variable one, it depends too, because it's not always equitable. If somebody makes $100,000 a year and somebody makes $30,000 a year, um, 50-50 isn't necessarily fair. So um, if we're buying steak and seafood and whatever, and I'm the one paying for the groceries, that would add a different stress, because if your mortgage payment is $800 a month and that's all you're paying, then easily it can get out of whack. I think it comes back to the communication. Uh, let's review that in three months. Let's review that in six months. Or maybe you just have a joint account that everything joint comes out of that. And whether somebody puts in 70% and the other puts in 30 or 50-50, that's you know, something to negotiate. But we, both parties need to understand what the utilities cost as well. This uh, Manulife survey, um, this one actually really surprises me. Uh, 8% of the men that were polled in this Manulife survey admitted they had a hidden purchase worth $15,000 or more. How in the world do you hide a purchase of fifteen grand or more? Because I'm thinking car, I'm thinking motorboat. Um, I don't, I don't want no. I'm thinking an ATV that they've left at their friend's house. Yeah, something <laughs> that that one is really concerning. Well, it, that is alarming. The other thing is the inflated prices. I tell you, I spent five thousand dollars on it, but it was really eight. So a lie is a lie. Um, I'm not sure how they would actually hide that other than independent lines of credit. Um, I have had actually couples that are discovering the other person's debt in front of me. It's very uncomfortable. And at the same time, it's safe for them to have that conversation because nobody's going to get out of control with that third person. So if, um, if a couple can't have that conversation alone, there has to be um, an advisor or a counselor of some sort that they would be able to have that conversation where it can be constructive rather than just accusatory and hurtful for the relationship. I was going to say, if if that's you sitting down and then somebody for the first time finds out that they've bought, a, as you say, an ATV for uh, $20,000, I would suggest uncomfortable is probably a good word for somebody like yourself or somebody uh, kind of the third person in that conversation. It would be kind of telling as to where the relationship is at anyways. It probably is just a matter of time until they go their separate ways because that kind of disconnect in the relationship, I can't see being resolved. So what uh, should, I mean, this is, you know, I I don't want to get into the whole marriage counselor thing here, but as couples (laughs) start to get married or they're going out or they're planning their lives together, um, that you know, they they talk about getting uh, that dream house or what have you, which can get you in a whole other situation. Uh, I would suggest communication is the key anyway, but probably in this case as well, it's critically important, is it not? How people handle money, their attitude towards saving, their attitude towards goal setting, that's huge. And that is something that we as financial advisors can help with um, because like buying a house, that's a huge, huge purchase. 
I did notice in the article that they commented on people are so concerned about paying off the house that they rack up other more expensive debt. If you're paying like 3 or 4% on your mortgage and you're paying 19% on a credit card, the obvious would be get rid of the 19% sooner than later. So don't accelerate your mortgage payment. Like slow that down to get rid of the other debt. Sometimes I find when I meet with couples, it's, you have to look at priorities. It's like what's most important, particularly a young couple, because they want to buy a house or pay off their house. They have children, so there's education, there's the, uh, RSPs, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to look at the cash flow first to see what disposable cash could be created and then help prioritize. If you do an RSP contribution, do you take the refund and put it on the mortgage or do you put it into the RESP? Do you, I, I think getting rid of credit card debt needs to be everybody's first priority. Well, I can tell you it, it took a long time, and I finally listened to, as I say, my wife who handles the finances, who finally made me understand the value of a line of credit as opposed to paying, as you say, the 19% on, mm-hmm. on, on the credit card. So from that standpoint alone, Carolyn, you should be happy that I listened to my wife, who's a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> Good advice. Uh, so uh, just before we, we wrap up then... Um, Rule of thumb, as you say, is you know don't necessarily pay off the mortgage, but get rid of all that really big debt that can actually um, choke a person financially. Correct? Yes. My my recommendation would be if you're feeling a little bit afraid that it's getting out of control while your credit rating is still good, run, don't walk, run and get advice so that you can clean it up before you end up taking those steps of bankruptcy, et cetera. Because most people want to pay their debt. It's just they sometimes just don't know how to put it all together. And make sure that you talk to your other half in your relationship just to make sure, correct? Exactly. Carolyn Humby, the investment advisor at First Ontario Credit Union, talking about the Manual Life Survey. One in five Canadian couples confess that they don't know how much debt they're in. Uh, their significant other doesn't know that, and uh, you and I would suggest that that probably could be a little higher. Carolyn, thank you for the time. Have yourself a great weekend. Much appreciated. Thanks, Ted. Have a great day. You too. Uh, So there you have it. One in five. You know, these surveys can sometimes be massaged and you can extrapolate numbers, but um, I'm wondering, you don't have to send me an email or a tweet or what have you. I'm just wondering for people that are listening this morning, are you kind of nodding your head in agreement that you're in this situation? Or you know somebody that's in this situation. Because to me, if somebody hides a purchase, okay, buy a pair of shoes. If it's on sale, 50 bucks, that's one thing. But hiding a purchase worth $15,000 or more? How do you do that? And how do you feel afterwards? You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. For the next little while, we're going to talk about the housing market in uh, in Hamilton. Uh, in a few minutes, we'll talk to the senior market analyst for CMHC that released uh, a study yesterday about uh, the housing prices in Hamilton. The central and eastern neighborhoods are reaping the benefits of the housing market despite the city's real estate sector having cooled off overall. But first, uh, always to uh, kind of break down some of those numbers, we are so pleased to be joined by uh, the business professor for the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, 
Marvin Ryder joins us. Marvin, are you enjoying the sunshine today? I, I'm going to for sure. As soon as we get done, that's the uh, first plan of my uh, day. <laughs> I was going to say, the campus is beautiful this time of year, right? I mean, there's no humidity. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. Uh, they do a lovely job on that campus. Let's uh, talk about uh, the study that came out f- from CMHC that basically right. said Hamilton Center and Hamilton East are, are the favored sellers. Uh, are you surprised by that? Not, not exactly, Ted. Let me, let me just maybe give a little context before I answer your question directly. So CMHC re- releases this report quarterly, and for the last eight quarters or two years, it has been telling us that the Hamilton market has been a little hot and a little vulnerable. The potential for bad things to happen was there. Good news, eight reports, nothing really terrible has happened, but it's just a good idea to let us know that these conditions are ripe. Now, uh, we knew that places like Ancaster and Dundas and, for that matter, Burlington, which is part of the Hamilton CMA, uh, those markets were cooling down. What this confirms is that there are still bargains to be had in the marketplace and that buyers are still attracted to places, uh, for good or bad, the east and the downtown area. Those prices tend to be a little lower. So even though there had been some inflation, they are still fairly affordable. Places like Ancaster, Dundas, and Burlington – you, you've got to have a, a fair amount of income to be looking in those places. Uh, so when you're talking about, um, you know, a lot of millennials and what have you always talk about Marvin about buying that dream house yep. and what have you. So let's, for example, say because I'm, uh, we live uh, in the Gage Park area. We there's always houses for sale and what have you. What's the Marvin Ryder rule of thumb for people that want to buy? Not necessarily a dream house, but a house, because it seems for a lot of couples just starting, it's a little tough. Sure. So let me give you two rules of thumb, if you don't mind. Rule of thumb number one is how much house can you buy? The rule of thumb has always been two and a half times annual household income. So if you and your spouse make $100,000, then you should be able to buy a $250,000 home if you and your spouse do $150,000 together, then you can buy a home that's worth roughly $375,000. Now, here's the second rule of thumb. Once you buy the house, uh, we also talk about mortgages and things like that. What's the carrying cost? Your cost of being in a home, whether it's a a real house or a condo or even a rental unit, shouldn't be any more than 33% of your monthly income. So if I take home, I don't know, uh, $5,000 a month, then all of my rent, everything like that, shouldn't be over about $1,600. If you push that, if you get it into the $2,000 range, or if you push it up to 40 to 50% of your take-home income, it's not that you're in deep, deep trouble, but you are really at the absolute max. That If there's any bump in the road, uh, whether you can continue to pay those numbers, that's the concern. And this is also why CMHC warns you that it says, you know, when you buy a house, don't stretch yourself to the point that if there's any little tick up, for instance, we've seen interest rates go up one full percentage in the last year, if that's enough to, to cause you to pain, then don't, don't stretch yourself that far. Get this thing sorted out. So I, I don't think we're going to see a big bubble. I don't think we're going to see a lot of people losing homes. I don't think we're going to see a lot of houses being devalued. But we're in for a bit of a pause now in the market, a calm in the market. Housing prices not going up at three times the rate of inflation as we saw in the last five years. And I think if you're a flipper, this is bad news. But if you're really buying a house as an investment, 
you've got nothing to worry about. Uh, job security is always something when people uh, look right. at buying a home and what have you. I know Hamilton it continues to try to divest itself from the steel industry. We've had numerous conversations about that as well. Um, looking down the road a bit, uh, your uh, crystal ball, and I understand you know at, at times it's a fool's game to uh, try to do this. With the next six months, and you're chuckling on this, six months to a year, uh, I've heard some people use the mild R word yep. coming up. Do you see anything like that coming up? And if so... What would the warning signs be? Right. So, you know, here's the good or the bad news. If I can just look at Canada on its own or, or Ontario on its own or even Hamilton on its own, there'd be no reason to think there's any recession. There's nothing going on inside the country that would lead me to any concerns whatsoever. The problem, of course, is our neighbor to the south, the United States, and that T word that we've all come to know and hate, tariff. Uh, if Donald Trump continues on this tariff spree, not so much if these uh, these first tariffs remain, we'll survive steel and aluminum tariffs. We'll find a way through that. Maybe Hamilton will be hurt a little bit, but certainly Canada won't be hurt by it the same way. But if this were to be extended to the auto sector, then we would be into a recession by 2019. By the way, so would the United States, and that's why I'm hoping cooler heads will prevail down there. So what we're looking for is economic growth. And, and the idea is as long as the economy continues to grow, we will avoid a recession. But for Donald Trump, these, this sort of this willy-nilly application of tariffs, that's the concern not just in Canada but in Europe. That's why Mr. Juncker was there this week. It's in places like Japan. He, he really likes throwing stones into a pond that really <laughs> needs to be as calm as it possibly can be. And that's, that's the thing that has me worried. If that doesn't happen... I don't think we'll see a recession next year. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Thank you for the time. Enjoy the sunshine, Marvin. You're free. Go have a great weekend. <laughs> I will. Thank you. All very right. Much, all right. All right. That's Marvin Ryder, as we mentioned. And now joining us to talk about the study that came out yesterday is uh, the senior market analyst for Hamilton and Brantford, Anthony Passarelli, joins us. Anthony, how are you on this beautiful Friday? I'm great. How are you? Excellent. So let's uh, talk about this uh, this uh, study that uh, came out, uh, the housing market in Hamilton. It's cooling, but it's not really cold, is it? That's correct. So we put out this report every every quarter, and what we're doing, we're just making an assessment of the market, and uh, we have a, a, a word that we use, which is vulnerability, right? So what we're saying is, is the market vulnerable? Is it a high degree, moderate, or low? And Hamilton's been in that high degree of vulnerability for a while now. Uh, the market has cooled a bit. However, you got to remember, as was discussed uh, on the earlier segment, that prices had been growing at a really fast rate for, let's say, three to five years prior to uh, this year. And those uh, prices were growing at a much faster rate than incomes. So the growth in prices more than incomes during that period has put the market in a state where you know, a lot of people can't get into the market. There's affordability issues. So we're flagging that as a concern. And even though recently prices have come off a bit, that run-up over the last five years keeps it in this sort of highly vulnerable state. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I, you talk about affordability, and, and all I know is in the last several years, and we live, as as I say, in, well, not necessarily the East End per se. We're, we're over by the Gage Park area, the Rosedale area, and I can tell you, like, we, every weekend we check just out of curiosity, and you see the signs, and houses that could have been bought for, oh, I don't know, three, four, five years ago for maybe 150 or 200 
And now there are some prices of houses that are going up in that area for $500,000. Was that too much too soon? Well, if, if you look at some of these fundamentals that we look at, so incomes, employment, population growth, prices where they're at are still a little bit higher than are justified by those factors. And that's pretty much what's behind this report, if I was to sort of summarize it really quickly for you like that. So those high prices you're seeing relative people's incomes are, you know, that's kind of what the concern is. Now, like I said, there has been some catch-up lately because prices have cooled off a bit, which is for us a, a good thing because that means that things are becoming a little bit more affordable because prices are outstripping your incomes for a long period of time. But like you said, if it continues at that rate it had been in the last five years, I think we would have been in a, a difficult situation in Hamilton. Uh, I'm wondering now, we, we've heard a lot of stories, and in many ways it's good for the city, but the influx of people coming in from Toronto, has that subsided a little bit, for, or is that still going on strong? Because we hear a lot of stories about people that say, I can't afford to live in Toronto, but I can in Hamilton. Absolutely. That, that's definitely a factor that has led to some of that strong price growth. The person coming from Toronto, the household, I should say, coming from Toronto with that slightly higher income, let's say, than in Hamilton on average, and they're boosting the prices up. We still think that is uh, their, their presence is strong in the market because even with Toronto prices coming off a bit, they're still very high, especially when you look at people looking to buy like a single detached home, for example. Uh, so that is there's still a strong presence in the market, but I would say it has dropped off a little bit given that you know when prices cool a bit in Toronto, some of those people stayed in that market instead of coming to Hamilton. One of the things that I've noticed driving around, and of course you are the senior market analyst for Hamilton and Brantford, I have noticed now signs, and you can see them when you're driving on um, Paramount Drive or Mud Street or in and around the Link area, there are signs now advertising uh, single detached homes and new surveys in Brantford. That seems to be kind of the, no, no one really talks about Brantford, but talk about for our, our listeners in Brantford, how that market is responding and uh, why that seems to be in many ways a real best kept secret. Absolutely. You've seen, especially early this year, a lot of new single detached homes have been built in Brantford or started, I would say. And that market has benefited from Number one, the the affordability issues in Hamilton. So some people are moving from Hamilton to Brantford because of the affordability there versus in Hamilton. So, and you're also getting people from the GTA West type of markets, you know, the Oakville, Mississauga type of area. So that area, uh, Brantford has benefited from the high prices in Hamilton and the GTA West. And you've seen that uh, particularly those people are moving there for those uh, larger new single detached homes. Anthony, I'm wondering when we always hear the stories on CHML about the average price of a home in the Hamilton-Burlington area, uh, I, I guess it goes down to the Hamilton-Burlington-Grimsby area, are, are, are those numbers skewed a little high given because of the various wards in the, in the city of Hamilton and some areas are, as we say, uh, like there's Ancaster versus the East End. So can, can we take those numbers and kind of think maybe that's not quite the case? Absolutely. Whenever you have an average, it's going to be skewed by especially the uh, the high numbers in there. So if I always break down the market into the neighborhood as well, um, but we do this study, it's for the average. But I, I talked about, uh, and it was mentioned in the earlier segment about some of these areas like the downtown Hamilton and East still being a seller's market. 
And the reason for that is obviously, again, this affordability issue. The house prices on average in those areas are in sort of the mid to high $300,000 range, which is in a lot of people's wheelhouse. Whereas if you look in this Burlington Ancaster, obviously much higher average prices and sort of like 800000 ish range. So a lot of variability be across the region. And those areas that are more affordable are the ones that have not cooled off as much. Before we uh, wrap it up, uh, we did have a conversation earlier on the first uh, half uh, of this hour uh, with Marvin Ryder talking about interest rates. Uh, if there, uh, Do you, in your crystal ball, see any more interest rate hikes uh, in the last half of this year, or are we pretty well stable as far as that? Which, of course, has a big part to play in people getting mortgages. Absolutely. Now, at CMAC, we actually forecast your market in Hamilton, uh, once a year in the fall. So the forecast that we did last fall, we were pretty much on the money with interest rate increases. We were saying they were going to increase uh, moderately, but possibly a few times. And and I think that's happened, and their impact has been felt on sales being lower. Uh, for the rest of the year, we will likely see interest rates rising again, a small increase. And in the fall of this year, we're going to put a revised forecast out for 2019. So look forward to that usually around late October. All right, we'll see what happens with that. Anthony Passarelli, CMHC Senior Market Analyst for Hamilton and for Brantford. Thank you for the update on housing prices in Hamilton. Look forward, as always, to getting your report in the fall as to what uh, the crystal ball predicts. Thank you very much for uh, joining us, and enjoy the weekend. You too. Well, there you have the look at uh, what's been happening in the city of Hamilton. The eastern and central neighborhoods are still reaping the benefits of a hot housing market. So it's kind of cool, cooling off overall. And I think what they're saying in many ways that they kind of touched upon already is uh, you look at a house in Westdale or in Dundas or in Ancaster versus a house, say, in the Rosedale area of Hamilton or in the maybe the Durand area of Hamilton, uh, East End versus Central, and there is a little bit of a difference as well. And the other thing, of course, we keep an eye on CHML News and Business all the time is the interest rate. Uh, he predicts at least a little bit more of a blip upwards in the interest rate uh, in the latter half of the year. We'll keep an eye on that and uh, and see how that affects the market. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Time to turn to some inspirational stories. Our next two guests uh, have taken what some would say are really negative situations, and they can be, but they've turned them into positives, and now they're helping others. And we're so pleased to be joined by Diane. Okay, I practiced the name. Tell me again, Diana. Diana Muskowskis. Muskowskis joins us, and also Sheila Laffin, who uh, joins us as well. Sheila, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. All right, now let's uh, start off, first of all. Um, let's talk about Diana, who actually uh, kind of introduced me to uh, this guest as well. You um, suffered from a pretty horrific incident. And yes. something happened to you several years ago. And again, from that, um, you suffered PTSD. Yes, I do. So uh, tell us about the incident. What happened? So I was involved in a motor vehicle accident in 2009, and I suffered from debilitating physical injuries, and about a year or two later developed crippling post-traumatic stress disorder, which turned into complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And I've been through a lot of treatment, a lot of therapy. Um, and one thing that has been a pillar for me has been yoga. Yoga has helped me in so many ways try and manage the 
pain that I've had from the incident, from the accident, as well as the emotional struggle that I faced through that post-traumatic stress disorder, the fear, the anxiety, the depression, all of those things that left me more isolated than anything else. The, the physical symptoms we've heard about uh, this, about uh, PTSD and what have you, can be overwhelming, but what were some of those physical symptoms that you had? So the physical symptoms that I manifested or that manifested within me were flashbacks, nightmares, um, extreme hypervigilance, could not get into a car, uh, could not go out of my house in certain respects, just had a lot of anxiety that left me at home and questioning and doubting and wondering whether or not I could actually cope with the world to make just even minor decisions. Now, that uh, led you to, uh, as we say, talk about yoga. And our next uh, guest, as we mentioned off the top, is Sheeta Laffin, who uh, teaches yoga. But your story, you're incredible. Like, I'm... I'm, I'm Honest to God, I'm reading your story, you know, and and this is addressed, I guess, to people everywhere who, you know, think, ah, I'm having a bad day. You know, the guy in the Timmy's lineup in front of me cut me off or some whatever. You got nothing when you listen to the story of uh, Sheila. Let's start off, first of all, you were a two-time cancer survivor. Correct. Uh, five years ago, I was going about my life um, when it suddenly imploded. I got the designation that I had stage four throat cancer. Stage four. Stage four as a non-smoker, social drinker, midlife, um, enjoying life. And in the midst of my career, um, doing well in life. And then suddenly I stopped dead in my tracks. Stage four throat cancer. And... You were, as you say, a non-smoker, which knocked you for a loop. Nope, no, totally. I ate well. I taught. I worked full time, um, thirty-five to sixty hours a week. But I taught fitness classes at least fifteen to twenty of them a week. So I was physically fit, and I it just knocked me for a loop. Uh, went through a very, very complex um, healthcare uh, from five five-day chemos to and 40 radiation treatments and then four months later I decided I was ready to go back to work that was my type a personality <laughs> I was going to say though um, I've, I've heard radiation treatments uh, are can be absolutely brutal that yes it kills the cancer cells but it, it's really working on your entire uh, body completely from extreme exhaustion to cognitive to cognitive impairment and then the mind the monkey mind takes over and you're living in the world of what if is the other shoe gonna fall and the other shoe fell for me because four months six months later I got diagnosed with the same cancer it had returned and this time it was in the lymph nodes in my in the side of my throat and so I had to have what was called a radical neck dissection and without getting too graphic, sure. uh, what is that? So basically, they go in and um, open up the side of the neck and remove the whole chain of the lymph nodes. So my right side um, has completely severed the scapulas, the traps, and the jugular was reattached. And I took a year off. Actually, this time I took a year off. I had no mobility in the arm on the right side and I still have no facial um, recognition or feeling mm -hmm. in the right side from my shoulder all the way up to the skull. Now, okay, so not that that's, you know, we've 
brush that off. You're mm-hmm. two two time cancer survivor, stage four. And then you had a stroke. Can you believe it? A year later, I go back to work. I think I'm back on track. I get back on the corporate wheel, spinning my wheels, going fast forward. And one day I'm teaching a fitness class to children. And as I'm walking across the room with the kids, I start falling to the right. And I thought to myself, this is odd. Something strange is happening. Maybe if I lean to the left, I will straighten up. Well, it didn't happen. I crashed. I fell down. And I found myself in recovery position. No warning signs. I had no symptoms that I was going to have a stroke. So uh, did they get to it in time? They did. They did. The adults that were there in this in the space called ER. Um, I had paramedics come and I flatly refused. I kept trying to get up, but my legs wouldn't work. I kept trying to, the, being the professional that I am, <laughs> uh, finish the class for the kids. Or stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I had my keys in hand and I was determined that I was going to finish the class or I was going to go home. I had a killer headache after I went down, but I agreed to get into the ambulance. They took my handbag and keys away. And I agreed because they were going to take me to Dravinsky, which was very close by. Mm -hmm. And as I was in the ambulance, um, they kept asking me the same questions. Name, where do you live? What's your birthday? And they kept saying it repetitively. And I finally heard myself come out with garble. And then I went into, oh, no, I'm extremely vulnerable. Something's wrong. And I just refused to talk. You use the term the corporate wheel. Yes. from all that, that that happened, and you talked about your type A and the corporate w- world that drives us all. Yes. At times, it can be obviously really, 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 what's the term I'm looking for? Stressful, I guess is yes. a good word. Yes, very. After what you went through, did you decide basically that's it, I'm done with the corporate world? And so as I sat after getting an MRI and they showed me the bleed, mm-hmm. I said, okay, universe, I'm listening. You have my undivided attention. What is it I need to do? Of which I had my uh, husband and son bring my yoga mat to me in the hospital beside the bed. And the doctors were absolutely in awe that here I was, post-stroke, 24 hours, doing yoga, meditation, and just a gentle, slow flow beside my hospital bed. I was in hospital for almost 10 days because it was Christmas time. I had my stroke on the 23rd of December. Oh, great. So everything shuts down and I was locked in, but I got home uh, the last day of December. And, uh, wow, that's uh, Sheila Laffin and her story. And Diana Maskaskis is also with us. You're sitting here and you're shaking your head in agreement. And I know that that you take this yoga class to help you with your PTSD. Absolutely. Two things. First of all, how much in awe are you of this woman? And B, talk about what the yoga did to help you with your PTSD. Absolutely. I am in awe of Sheila. Uh, When her and I first met, I and I heard her story, I... We connected just so quickly on so many different levels because her because of her journey and her understanding of disability, cognitive impairment, um, post-traumatic stress, because it's got to be extremely stressful to have two-time cancer and a stroke. So she really understood my story as well with having debilitating anxiety. anxiety um, PTSD, but also the physical aspect and the cognitive piece, because from this accident, I also had neck, back, shoulder injuries, as well as a cognitive impairment. I went public with my story of anxiety last year, and you mentioned anxiety, and right away, 
something clicked. What uh, talk about some of the situations that you found yourself in where you knew that your anxiety started to kick up? Well, for one, I, I couldn't go back to work after having this accident. And then later on, after my accident, I was diagnosed with uh, scleroderma, mm-hmm. which is a autoimmune disease right. uh, that can also be quite debilitating with fatigue. Um, but the anxiety would manifest itself in just feeling like I couldn't cope with anything. I didn't know how to make a decision. I didn't know how to get into the car. I couldn't drive. Um, just a lot of doubt, a lot of doubt. When you mention not making a decision, boy, did you hit a nerve with that one. I can tell you my, and I've, I've been asked to speak in public about my story, so uh, just so you know, I can relate. So let's take this now one step further. Um, and Sheila, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, here I am. Uh, people know me. I try to stay in shape, and I run and try to watch what I eat and what have you, much like yourself. And, there, and there's a small part of me that thinks, why do I even bother doing this? Because in the end, somebody like yourself that's healthy, that gets stage 4 cancer, if it can happen to you, it can happen to anybody, why should I bother? Well, it's important. Your health is your temple. I have to be honest with you. Prior to my illness, um, I decided in my 40s I was going to get fit for 40. I was morbidly obese. I was almost 300 pounds at that point. And during my weight loss and my road to health and recovery, I got sick. But I have to be honest with you, if it wasn't for the fact that all the prep work I did leading up to cancer, there's no way I could have sustained a healthy outcome. There is absolutely no way. It, it comes down to how you feel about yourself, the fight within you, but also how much are you willing to give. And the fact that I was so physically fit and prepared to take on the treatment, it was an aggressive plan. And I didn't stop my plan. It just went full, full tilt. You uh, deal now, we talk about people with uh, PTSD and mm-hmm. with seniors and what have you. What's it like for you when you get somebody for the first time? Let's use Diana as an example, sure. if, if she came in for the very first time in a class, she knows that she has to do it, but she's kind of reticent just because of whatever reasons. Take us through what you do with somebody like her. So first of all, introductions and making sure that the person feels extremely safe. I share with them my story and also share with them my story around anxiety, stress, post-traumatic stress. I am also affected by my illnesses. Um, the first round of cancer was the fight of my life. But then when it came back, I couldn't reach out to the same group of people. I felt like my body failed me and hence my own slippery slope with depression. Uh, when the stroke happened, it was the same again, reliving pain, reliving my own failure in my body. So when I have someone come to us for the first time, it's the safety. It's making sure that they feel welcome, inclusion, that everybody, no matter what your size, no matter what your health is, you are welcome to move in a way that's right for you. I'm smiling because as a runner, we notoriously are lousy stretchers. And I'm sitting here visualizing me taking a yoga class, <laughs> trying to stretch, get down to the downward dog or the happy baby, yeah. and, my, and my knees are hollering, the arthritis in me is basically saying, what are you doing? And I wouldn't put you in that place <laughs> at all, ever. I say to you always, listen to your body. I do, and that's the problem, because <laughs> everything's screaming. <laughs> and if it's screaming, then we work in a way that's right for you. We honor that. The body knows what's best for you. When trauma happens to us, 
it gets locked into our body because we automatically, the first thing that happens when we have a shock of any type is our body starts to shake. That is normal. That is very a primal reaction. Momamic animals do the same. But we see it as something that's so negative that we shut it off. And then what happens is it gets locked within our body and it's stored there. So no amount of cognitive help. I mean, cognitive therapy is so important. I'm not minimizing it. But we keep reliving it. We don't get it to exit the body. And so if we can actually take the time and get the discharge to finally happen, we then release it in a very safe environment. And how do you know that that's being done? Because the body will shake while you're in a pose. And you can see the discharging or you can see the relief of the person. I give anyone who comes to the studio permission to close it down, shut it off. If it doesn't feel right for you, you don't have to do it. And if you need to walk away, I have a special area that I ask you, just go there, sit it out. No explanations needed, not required. You move in a way that's right for you. There is no explanations. We stay in the present moment. We always honor what is right. Diana, let's ask you, uh, we, we talked about the symptoms that, that, that you had. Um, how has the yoga helped you with, uh, well, physically is one thing, but the mental game, especially when there, we, we all have those bad days where the self-doubt for what any, any reason starts creeping in. Sure. So physically, for sure, stretching your body always feels good, um, especially after an accident or anything. Um, emotionally, though, one thing I can say specifically about how, how Sheila teaches and just her studio space, for example, um, or in yoga in general, I feel that I can actually, specifically in her space, bring all of me there. So when you have trauma, one thing you do have is a lot of self-judgment. This, this was my fault and a lot of blame, a lot of, so there's this, this, this overwhelming not feeling well enough in your skin but if you're coming to your mat and you're actually showing yourself some compassion and some kindness and some gentleness and saying you know what you've been through a lot and it's okay and here's a safe space for you to actually bring those emotions up whether you you can cry on your mat you can go into baby pose you can like not baby pose but on your side right. in, in recovery pose um, or remove yourself if you need to but that space is so comfortable that that because safety is a huge thing for people who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder because nothing is safe nothing not even making that decision about peanut butter chunky smooth right i have no issues it's chunky all the way oh well there you go <laughs> last point then so uh, talk about the uh, community if you will mm -hmm. when uh, people that are suffering from something obviously are there it seems that the support system is very huge and as you say because i was thinking if somebody is coming in and they're going through something it's okay to cry and people are there to be understanding absolutely and and in that space you have the ability to be who you are and what what's and validate validate that yeah this is a tough time for me and it's okay and to have the support of people like sheila and the people in the studio um it's, it's really a very welcoming space. Just before we wrap up, uh, people are wondering about your studio. Uh, where is it located? We are Quite a Stretch Yoga and Zumba, located at 672 Fennel Avenue East, just uh, west of Sherman, Upper Sherman and Fennel. Incredible story for two very strong, powerful women, and I love to hear these inspirational stories. Diana Meskoskis and uh, Sheila Laffin. 
congratulations on your journey. I think that you've helped some people out there this morning, and hopefully we'll continue to do so in the next little while. Thanks for dropping by. Thank, thank you. you so much for having we, us. Yes, thank you. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.